This is Macro Horizons, Episode 68, Reopening and Rebuilding, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 11th. And as the market digests the 20.5 million job losses, we remain flummoxed by the bid for risk assets. Flummoxed, a description so apt in the current trading environment. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed was an interesting one in terms of the new economic information and the refunding statement, but really wasn't quite as compelling as it could have been in terms of price action in the Treasury market. What we saw was the Treasury Department announced a massive amount of borrowing, including a 20-year, $20 billion bond to be auctioned on May 20th. Included in the refunding announcement was also $42 billion in three years. $32 $32 billion in 10 years, and $22 billion in 30s. This was generally larger than expected, and as a result, we did see the yield curve steepen out. But the steepening occurred within a range that has been in place for the last six or seven weeks, and as a result, we're interpreting the price action from this week as simply confirming the broader range. In 10-year space, that comes in at 54 to 78 basis points. As we look through the balance of May, even into Memorial Day weekend, we struggle to see anything that will lead to a break of that range, at least not one on a sustainable basis. The longer end of the curve, the 30-year sector in particular, has underperformed. Now, that's consistent with the Treasury Department's borrowing needs, and it's also a reflection of the fact that investors, at least on the margin, anticipate some type of reflationary pressure to emerge as a result of the massive amount of accommodation put into the system from the Fed. An update on the week wouldn't be complete without acknowledging that we did see a negative 20.5 million non-farm payrolls print and an increase in the unemployment rate to 14.7%. Now, the market knew that April was going to be a bad month for the labor force. The big question now becomes how long before those job losses are reversed and how many of them will ultimately be permanent. For the time being, we're content to let the market digest the ramifications from the weak BLS data and expect that as attention shifts to May, the trajectory of rehiring will become the primary focus. Initial anecdotes regarding re-engaging the U.S. labor force have been positive, although slow progress has been reported in most regions. This speaks to a continuation of the ongoing uncertainty in financial markets. One of the biggest disconnects has been the continued outperformance of risk assets, as the S&P 500 has climbed back above 1900 
while two-year yields have managed to dip to record low yields. This is clearly consistent with an investor community that believes that the Fed is going to be on hold for the foreseeable future. And if the Fed Fund's futures market is to be believed, there is a non-zero probability that the Fed in 2021 might dip into the world of negative policy rates. Our baseline assumption is that that will not occur. The Fed has a lot of tools at their disposal, and the success of negative rates in Europe has been questionable at best. Nonetheless, it has become topical and something that is driving price action, especially in the front end of the curve. So 20 million job losses in April, and yet treasuries sell off? What am I missing? Well, I mean, it wasn't 25 million. So I think the sentiment is to some extent that it could have been worse. I think in more practical terms, however, we knew going into the non-farm payrolls report that the market was anticipating a dismal figure. And whether that dismal figure was negative 20, negative 15, negative 22, the fact of the matter is that investors have to a large extent, already moved on from April and are starting to ponder what the world is going to look like once the economy reopens and we start to see post-lockdown data. I will note that the range that we've been following in 10-year yields has managed to hold remarkably well. After the BLS data, 10 stabilized at roughly 66 basis points, effectively right in the middle of the 54 to 78 basis point range that we've been tracking over the course of the last six or eight weeks. Now, our baseline expectations remain that there is very little that will challenge that range until we get some more concrete data regarding the success of the reopenings of various regions in the U.S. economy. That isn't information that we'll hear in the very near term, but nonetheless, the incoming anecdotes continue to provide tradable opportunities. And following such a dismal report, a natural follow-up is, well, sure, the lockdowns have triggered historic job losses, but given the nature of this shock to the labor market, isn't it a reasonable expectation that at least a good chunk of those jobs will be brought back in relatively short order? As the first wave of the coronavirus fades, as lockdowns get lifted, and as the economy gets back online. Now, how many of those layoffs will be considered a temporary blip versus permanent? And what I mean by that is those jobs are not coming back in the form they were before the pandemic. I think that debate really will be crucial in framing how long the economic pain that was wrought in April lingers throughout the rest of the year. Well, in our pre-NFP survey, we actually asked the client base the question, how long will it take before the job losses seen in April are considered permanent? Now, the average response that we got was roughly 11 months. So that's a pretty significant runway for the economy to regain the job losses. And frankly, it's a lot more forgiving than I was expecting. My baseline assumption was that if we don't see the labor force re-engaged by the fall, people would just characterize those job losses as permanent. So this does provide an interesting opportunity for the Fed if they need to do more later. And as we've talked about, most people are looking for an increase in COVID-19 cases and fatalities via a second wave. But as long as the second wave isn't sufficient to justify another lockdown, I'll argue that a lot of that is already priced in. And further in the details of the BLS report, two things that are worth highlighting, I think. One, the unemployment rate, and two, the spike in average hourly earnings we've seen. 
On the former, within the details of the release, if the BLS had corrected for those people who were quote-unquote employed but absent from work, the unemployment rate actually would have been nearly five percentage points higher, which is pretty telling. On the second point, the 4.7 month-over-month gain in average hourly earnings on the surface might imply, oh wow, wages are rising. But in fact, the mechanics there is that given the nature of the job losses that we've seen and the fact that most of those were of the lower wage variety, that mechanically will boost what the average take-home pay is, just given the fact that higher paying jobs now make up a greater share of the total employment landscape out there. Another nuance that we can take away is distinguishing between people who reported themselves being temporarily laid off and permanently laid off. If one goes through the math of the report, even if every single person who considers themselves temporarily laid off goes back to work, the unemployment rate is still at 9%. Now, that's not 20%, but that's still upwards of the worst we saw in 2009, 2010. I also think that the composition of jobs point is a very good one because it implies that some of the flexibility of the lower wage earners is going to be important over the next several months. So, for example, when we think of the service sector, whether they're restaurants, bars, the hospitality industry, there does tend to be a fair amount of mobility within those industries. Not that they're not specialized, but the specialization is to a lesser degree than many of the higher wage categories. So, this means that while a certain subset of businesses simply will never come back, there will be other pockets of employment opportunities for those other low-wage earners. Again, timing is the big issue. Does this occur over the next several months or the next several quarters? And if anything, the severity of April's figures points to quarters, not months. So in the context of a very weak employment report, it's somewhat surprising to see yields a bit higher, the curve a bit steeper, and domestic equities and risk assets performing well. What isn't as surprising, however, is the fact that two-year yields have set record lows. Now, this is consistent with a couple things. One, it reflects the fact that the Fed is not expected to step back from the massive amount of monetary policy accommodation that they've put into the system or increase rates for the foreseeable future. In fact, in Fed funds futures, we've actually seen negative rates implied in 2021. Now, there's an argument that the move was at least in part a function of people being caught wrong-sided in the wake of the refunding announcement, although the bulk of the refunding was focused on the longer end of the curve, and so it's somewhat suspect that we would see that price action play out in 2021. I think in more practical terms, there are investors who believe that there is a real risk that the Fed might need to lower rates from what is now considered the effective lower bound. Yeah, yeah, and I think that there are some investors who are pushing the negative rates thesis in trade. And that's reasonable, you know. This is such a massive shock to the economy that all policy tools, fiscal and monetary, are on the table. And I have no doubt that they're considering negative rates. Now, I really don't think that they're going to go that route. Rather, they'll study it, they'll find that the effective lower bound really is where we're at now, and cutting rates any further would be self-defeating and actually leave the economy worse off than it was before. And we've even seen some indications of this. There hasn't been one FOMC official who really has been sympathetic to negative rates. On three separate occasions in his last press conference, Powell referred to 
the zero to 25 basis point level as the effective lower bound. So the idea that something occurred on Thursday that all of a sudden made negative rates a lot more likely is a little bit difficult to explain. One thing I would point to is when you see major technical breaches, you can sometimes see excess price action. The fact that two-year yields broke to that all-time low you noted at around the same time we saw this price action in Fed funds indicates there might be a dynamic there. So from my perspective, I think using this opportunity to position for a retracement of that negative rates is the path of least resistance. But at the end of the day, the Feds kind of bock themselves into a corner. Either they need to very clearly cross negative rates off the policy list, or some investors are still going to probabilistically price in that outcome. Even if it's a low likelihood, it's still greater than zero. So you will occasionally continue to see negative rates further out the curve in that six-month to two-year bucket on occasion. So operating under the assumption that the Fed is going to remain on hold, not dip into negative rates, this leads us to the next question, which is given a reasonable amount of stability in monetary policy, what's actually going to drive the next move in rates? We've long maintained that we need to have more information regarding the successful reopening of the U.S. economy, but we also do have inflation to worry about, or rather the potential for deflation in the very near term that will contribute to the macro narrative. If we look at the expectations for April's core CPI, we see the consensus at negative two-tenths of a percent month-over-month, headline down seven-tenths of a percent month-over-month. This is consistent with our base-case scenario, which implies that we will have near-term downward pressure on inflation, but once the economy is fully re-engaged, all of the stimulus, both on the fiscal and monetary policy side that's been put into the system, will lead to upward pressure on consumer prices. But that does imply a significant drop in the unemployment rate, which, as we pointed out earlier, is not universally expected to happen quickly. Yeah, and again, highlighting our pre-NFP survey, that sentiment was echoed in the responses. It's very reasonable to expect a period of very low or deflation over the next several months, but exactly as you say, Ian, given the impressive amount of stimulus that's been pumped into the system already, as we eventually make our way out of this, there is certainly room for inflation to pick back up, which will be aided by all these policy tools. I would also add in the tips market, both five and 10 year break evens are extremely low by historical standards. So even a recovery to somewhere in the neighborhood of below the Fed's target would represent a significant bearish impulse to the longer end of the curve. And exactly as you say, given where policy is now and the Fed's control of the front end, that's really going to translate to a steeper curve. I'm actually a little bit skeptical that we would see a classic bearish impulse and say the belly of the curve. If we did see that inflationary pressure instead, I would just expect to see real yields push lower. And the reason for this is that the nominal curve is anchored on Fed funds expectations going forward, which is low ballpark zero and perhaps some hikes one day in the future. So even if we did see an inflationary impulse, given forward guidance of rates staying low for longer, given an expectation of ongoing QE for quite some time, I think the inflation compensation would manifest in lower real yields rather than higher nominal yields. I think that's very consistent with the price action that we have seen thus far. One of the more important nuances, as we saw via the refunding statement, is that the Treasury Department does have a great deal of bonds to sell. 
And with that background, we do have 32 billion 10 years on Tuesday and 22 billion 30 years on Wednesday. Ben, do you have any thoughts on how the auctions might be received in the current environment? Yeah, these refunding auctions are definitely going to be the most interesting in recent memory for a few reasons. First being the larger than expected supply increases, which uncharacteristically of supply announcements actually triggered some discrete price action. Now, we often hear supply offered as a top tier risk to treasuries. But the fact of the matter is, we got an answer to the question, what is a $5 billion upsizing to a 10 year auction worth? Turned out it was roughly three or four basis points, and still 10 year yields were below 75 basis points. And the fact that the follow through from Wednesday's move was a greater rally that brought yields right back into the middle of the range really, to me, points out that there is demand that still exists at slightly higher yields and the liquidity points of the auction will continue to bring in buyers and the sponsorship that has met treasuries across the curve over the last several months even though we've seen such dramatic repricings, with several stop-throughs at record low yields, even with record large auction sizes, really is an encouraging fact when thinking about next week's supply sponsorship. One nuance on Thursday I think that's worth flagging is while we were seeing that relatively large rally in duration and focus on negative rates and all of that, there was some chatter about Japanese buyers coming back into the market. Now, it's normally very hard to disentangle those flows in an hour-by-hour, day-by-day basis, but I think the fact that you saw the yen broadly depreciate at the moment where treasuries were rallying is at least directionally consistent with that. Ian, as we go forward, it seems that FX hedge treasuries for Japanese investors are now looking somewhat attractive. Do you expect a wall of money coming out of Tokyo to buy treasuries or will they look towards other asset classes? Well, as we know, the Japanese had been buyers of treasuries on an unhedged basis. And as you point out, they are now attractive again on an hedged basis. So I would expect the continued inflows from one of the largest foreign holders of treasuries are given at this point. However, it does remain to be seen at what level investors are willing to buy 30-year U.S. debt. So treasuries, still big in Japan. I mean, they do like the bond. Long bond. Uh, Some jokes never get old. To us. In the week ahead, the April economic data will continue to provide trading direction, or at least help calibrate expectations for the second half of 2020. The first report of relevance is on Tuesday, via the core CPI print, with expectations for a drop of two-tenths of a percent in the month of April. This reflects the realities of the lockdown, but will also add fuel to the debate of whether or not the U.S. will be facing a deflationary spiral. We doubt that the Japanification of the U.S. economy will go that far. However, a period with downward pressure on consumer prices is a foregone conclusion at this point, if for no other reason than the repricing that occurred in the energy sector. Later in the week, we'll get the April retail sales print. The consensus is calling for an 11% reduction of sales in the month of April, and that's on top of the 8.4% decline that we saw in March. So spreading the downside out over two months does take away a bit of the sticker shock, although going forward, the biggest question remains how quickly will sales return. We also have the refunding auctions with 32 billion 10 years that we expect will be absorbed with 
very little additional concession. We do not anticipate that the 54 to 78 basis point range will be challenged as a result of the supply. But that doesn't mean that we might not see a clearing rate above 70 basis points for the new 10-year. In the 30-year space, a more significant concession seems appropriate with the context that at 135 to 140, the 30-year sector has continued to underperform the balance of the curve. This has led to a re-steepening, particularly in 2s, 10s, and 5s, 30s, that we anticipate has yet another leg ahead of it. The first leg resulting from the front end of the market being anchored to monetary policy expectations. The second leg will emerge if and when there is eventually evidence of upward pressure on inflation. For the time being, however, the probability that inflation expectations will spike anytime soon is limited. With the Memorial Day market closure quickly approaching on the horizon, we're reminded that this has historically been a time of the year when attention shifted to summer vacations and away from the markets. The classic adage, sell in May and go away, is unlikely to apply in 2020. Nonetheless, with work-at-home schedules becoming a reality, it will be very telling to see how the volume profile plays out as the month of May progresses. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with an eye on the reopening in the Northeast, we're still struggling to get our smartphone to recognize our masked faces. Wait, there's a code too? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. 
you should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.